it's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My guest today is Bruce Borges. He is the author of the Porter Beck Mysteries, and his latest novel, Bitter Past, is out from Minotaur right now. He's got a lot of great things coming up, so let's get started. Thanks for being here, Bruce. Thanks for having me, Terrence. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. Now, how about talking a, a little bit about uh, your novel that's currently out, Bitter Past? Let us know a little bit about that one. Sure. So The Bitter Past takes place in Nevada. It's a dual timeline story that starts in the present day with a sheriff, Porter Beck, of a very rural county, uh, Lincoln County in Nevada, which happens mm -hmm. to be right next door to uh, the place that is uh, was formerly called the Nevada Test Site. And it, and oh. it is where we used to test all of the atomic bombs. So uh, the book starts wow. the book starts with uh, Porter Beck at the scene of a very gruesome torture and murder of a retired FBI agent. And some, some things at the scene point to things that Beck recognizes from his past in the army, working predominantly in Russia. So there's a lot of things that don't add up at the scene and that leads him and his investigation back to events that took place in the 1950s in the same desert a few miles away when America was testing all of its atomic bombs. Wow. So that's, it's, it, it, the story kind of jumps back and forth between the present day and the 1950s. It involves the hunt for a, an old Soviet spy who may or may not still be living here in the US and might have infiltrated the test site back in the 1950s. And also mm -hmm. uh, some, some current Russian assassins who are running around Beck's County killing older men. Oh, okay. Interesting. Now, what, how challenging did you find it to write in a, a single narrative in two separate timelines? I'm always interested by uh, authors who try to do something like that. Yeah, it wasn't um, as difficult as I thought it was going to be. And the reason for that, I think, at least for me, because I know a lot of authors do things differently, but I always do a very detailed outline of the story before I even start typing the first draft. So mm -hmm. when I got to the point that um, I needed to jump to uh, you know, the, the past, for instance, I already knew what was going to happen from my outline. I had everything kind of laid out and uh, it just turned out to be a nice break for me to move back and forth between the two timelines. Um, I could have written it, you know, I could have written everything in the present day first and then everything in the past after that and then put them together, but I didn't even mm -hmm. have to do that. I, I just went back and forth fairly easily and that was that was nice. Right, right. Now, d when you were crafting this together, did you have to heavily outline so you knew 
what you covered and when and who the different characters were? Or did you usually write this from a stream of consciousness perspective? No, I, I, I pretty much map everything out to the extent that you, you really can before you start writing. So, I, I mean, I, have a, I always have a very good idea of the main plot points in the story, who the characters are, how they act, what their histories are. Uh, and, and so when I, when I start writing a draft uh, right. and, the, and the successive drafts, because I usually write five to seven drafts of the story before I think it's ready, um, mm -hmm. I, 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 I really don't have any issues with figuring out what's going to happen along the way. It's already, it's really already done for me. All I have to do is kind of fill in the blanks. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting part of the creative process, isn't it? How these uh, stories tend to take a mind of their own while yeah. they're in our own minds. Right, exactly. How was it writing, a, did you enjoy writing more in the modern day setting or in the setting back in the 1950s? Well, I think that there was there was a lot of attraction for me to write the story of what took place out here in the desert, um, which is only about 75 miles north of where I live in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> At that period of time in the 1950s, when we were testing our our newest, latest, and greatest atomic bombs, and and keep in mind that during that decade, we detonated the United States government detonated about a hundred atomic bombs above ground um, so right. in, in the open air and of course there's there's all the ancillary stories about where that radiation went and and how it affected people and livestock and other things but i was fascinated always by that period of our history so i right. really enjoyed writing those parts of the story even though it's it's not a half and half story. It's it's predominantly in the present day, but uh, I do have those those parts where I go back to the 1950s. So I really enjoyed the past sections probably a little bit more. Right, right, yeah, because you feel like you're an explorer in an unknown world because we didn't yeah. have full lives back then. You know, even if we right. were kids or whatever, it still was well beyond us. Yeah to experience. Yeah, I did a uh, short story that was uh, set in Las Vegas during that time. And I had a bunch of, uh, I had a couple of scenes where they were sitting on the rooftop watching the atomic bombs explode yeah. in the, uh, at the testing grounds of people today don't really understand that's, it was that close to where people were vacationing and living. Yeah, you could actually see from Las Vegas, you could see the sky light up. Um, even though, you know, again, it was probably somewhere between 60 and 75 miles away. That's, that's how big those explosions were. And you're mm -hmm. right. Not a lot of people today have a very good understanding of, you know, what we were doing at the time and how serious we took the, the race between us and the Soviet Union to build yeah. this nuclear arsenal. Yeah. Yeah, it was a it was a completely different time. A lot of people can relate to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that was an offshoot of this. This was the original uh, event, if you will, that was uh, that allowed that to happen in the first place. Trying to get the technology and building up the weapons uh, right. to counterbalance each other for power in the world. Right. 
So how would you describe your uh, your current day protagonist, um, quarterback? Would you say that he is um, a mixture of old world of law enforcement officer and new, or what would you say? Yeah, I would, I would say that's a great description of him. He's actually about 45 years old. He was born and raised in Lincoln County, which just to give uh, all of your listeners some ideas, is a very rural county. It only has about 6,000 people, but by area, by geography, it's 11,000 square miles. It's about the size of Maryland. So wow, it's you know 6,000 people in a very large geographic county. And his father was the sheriff in Lincoln County for three decades. So he has a law enforcement background, just growing up, you know, being with his dad all the time. But then he spent a lot of time, he spent a, a whole career after college in the army, really as a foreign area officer, which was a person who specializes in a certain geographic region of the world. And his happened to be predominantly Russia. So he's a really, a, he's a Russia expert, spent a lot of time there and then came back to uh, Lincoln County in the US uh, and took over the job that his dad had for those 30 years. Um, and, and he left the army. Uh, I'll tell you one thing about him is he, he leaves the army predominantly because he has developed an eye condition, which is wow. uh, uh, something called retinitis pigmentosa. It's commonly referred to as night blindness. Uh, and it's a progressive disease, but he, he noticed uh, just before he left the army that he was have, having trouble seeing at night or when the, when the light was low. Um, so wow. he's actually dealing with that as the sheriff now which means at night his vision uh, kind of shrinks to uh, kind of a, uh, you know, it's very tunnel-like and right. he has no peripheral vision to speak of. So it's, it's really a tough obstacle for a law enforcement officer to have, but he's got some people and, and some other things that, that help him out in that way. Right, and Night Blind sounds like a great title for the third book in the series. Yeah, I'll tell you what it might be. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna keep that just great to me when you said that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I thought about I thought about another title at one point because he kind of refers to himself as a daylight man. Mm. Uh, so because again, he, he really only sees he sees fairly normally during the day. But as soon as right. the light starts to go low, he starts to lose that vision. That's an interesting uh, characteristic to give him because it does, um, it opens up an awful lot of uh, fun possibilities for you as the author of this world. Right. And it, it does create some problems for him in the story, even in the first story. So he's got to deal with that on a practical level and, uh, you know, still do his job. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And he, and he has a colorful cast of characters around him to help him do that. Um, I know that uh, it looks like you've got a second book in this series coming out called uh, Shades of Mercy. What is, uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Shades of Mercy is again the second book in the series, and we hope the series will go on for some time. Mm -hmm. 
but it, it takes place a little bit later than the first book, obviously. And Beck is trying to deal with, at the beginning of the story, um, kind of an, uh, a, a severe increase in the number of people in his county who happen to be dying from fentanyl overdoses. And oh, all right. like any place in the country, even though his county only has 6,000 people, drugs are a problem. And, you know, it's, it's, it's people who, you know, everyday people who are trying to deal with, uh, you know, pain in their bodies and are trying to get pain medications that happen to be laced with fentanyl. So he's seeing an uptick in overdoses. And at the same time, um, a highly classified military drone, which, again, being right next door to a place where a lot of those things are tested, happens right. to go off mission on July 4th. And Beck, even though his vision is it's pretty bad, happens to see this kind of fuzzy fireball streaking across the sky. And he's praying that that doesn't land in his county, whatever it might be, because already the county is essentially on fire. There's a bunch of wildfires going on because the drought has been so severe in the desert in the last few years that wildfires take off really without much of an issue. <clears throat> so mm -hmm. he's trying to deal with that. And he does find out that that thing actually does land in his county. And it actually lands on the ranch of his oldest friend and does some, some quite a bit of damage. And then the Air Force comes out and the NSA comes out and everybody's trying to find out what happened with this drone. And Beck's not buying the government's version of events. It doesn't add up mm -hmm. for him. And as a result of him trying to figure out what's going on with the drugs in his county, he ends up talking to a 16-year-old girl who's currently incarcerated at the Lincoln County Youth Center. It's kind of a reform school. She's, right. a, she's a hacker, basically, and she's a very gifted hacker. Okay. Uh, and he's, he's trying to use her to find out where people are buying these drugs and who they're buying them from. But okay. he, she ends up helping him uh, solve or, or, or look into at least where, you know, what happened with this highly classified military drone. But in talking to her and, and enlisting her aid, he also realizes that she's really not who she, she says she is. And oh. Mexican drug cartel is involved and the Chinese government is involved. And he, you know, it, it takes him a while to put all the pieces together, but all of those things are linked. Yeah, wow. That definitely sounds like an awful lot of intrigue. And, and uh, it doesn't sound like you're going to have what they call the sophomore jinx with this second book in the series. Yeah, I certainly hope not. I mean, it's, uh, I think the story is really good. Uh, I'm just waiting to get my editor's notes right now, and then we'll, we'll turn that around pretty quickly, and, and it'll be out next July. Fantastic. Fantastic. In the meantime, what's the best way that people can keep track of your success, your projects, other things that you're working on? What about your social media, websites, stuff like that? Yeah, so you can just uh, search for me by my name, Bruce Borges, at um, you know on Facebook, on on X or Twitter, Instagram. On Instagram, it's author Bruce Borges, and that last name is B O R G O S. 
or on my website, which is bruceborges.com. So you can kind of follow me on all of those places. I'm pretty involved in most of the, that social media stuff. Um, I'm probably on there much more than I would like. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, I, I hear you. It's a necessary, yeah, as you well know, it's a necessary part of the, uh, the writing career. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. We all have to budget time for that. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for being a part of this edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thanks to Bruce. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll see you next time, everybody. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.